series, and we're, we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, um, and we've, we've been noticing a couple, weeks, we, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea that in, in the Apostles' Creed, this ancient creed that believers, uh, uh, followers of Jesus have been reciting for um, hundreds, thousands of, of years, and, and so we've been kind of looking at the different pieces each week and saying, what does the Bible say about this particular clause or this particular statement? And we were noticing that there's this, there's this, there's a sort of movement that really echoes some of Paul's writings. Paul wrote a hymn in which he did the exact same thing that, that this God high and powerful you know, ascended. He descends into his creation to the lowest, lowest point and then ascends and so in this series, we, we've, we've been looking at uh, these three clauses. The first clause is about the Father. The second clause is about the Son. And then, of course, the third clause, which we'll start um, next week, is about the Holy Spirit and his work in his community. And so we're, we're kind of like right up here. We're at, we're at this part right here, that, that Jesus is going to return. And so this, the statement for tonight, which I'm sure you were all very excited when you saw this, from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead, <laughs> right? Don't you love to come to church where you get to talk about judgment? That's why, that's what you thought about when you got up this morning, right? I hope we talk about God judging us at church tonight, because it's such a fun topic. Um, I think Christians have for a long time struggled with the concept, probably a lot of us in this room, struggled with the concept of, well, is God loving or is he like just you know what I mean? And, and, and it, it just sort of feels weird. Like, how do I make sense of both of these realities if they're both true? If he is really loving and just, how do I, how do I think of that? One of the guys' names who has come up multiple times in this series, Pastor Donnie talked about him, I talked about him as well, was this um, second century uh, church guy named Marcion. And Marcion, if you remember, was influenced by this school of thought called Gnosticism. And uh, Marcion was really, really bugged by this concept of justice and love. And, and so he, you know, his view, which to kind of oversimplify it, was the Old Testament, it's, it's so judgy, as my daughter would say. It's super judgy. And, um, and so that's, I don't like that God. And so Marcion kind of rejected all of the Jewish roots and connections to the story, and he just sort of started with, well, he didn't even like Matthew because that's too Jewish too, so he, he, he really only liked Luke because Luke is a little bit less, you know, Jewishy, and he liked some of Paul's stuff and not others and stuff, but because he said, well, Jesus reveals a God of a father who's just, man, he's loving, like period. He's just loving, and so we have some of these statements, we know they're reflected in the creed because they're actually responding to the cultural context, that this was a movement that threatened the integrity of God's story through, throughout time. And so um, we're going to look just tonight a little bit at this and see if we can make sense of it at all. The primary way that the Bible wants to reveal uh, who God is, like his nature, his character, the primary way that, he, that it does it is through narrative story and through poetry, 
Those are the two primary ways that the Bible seeks to say, I want you to, like, this is God's self-revelation. I want you to know who God is. Like, I want you to know his character. I want you to know what he's like. It doesn't do the thing that we oftentimes tend to think about, maybe more in a, you know, Greek Aristotelian sense is, well, how about just a big long list of attributes? You know, he's ineffable. He's um, the unmoved mover. He's omniscient. He were like, that's kind of what we think about. It's like, just give me a big list of all the things. The Bible doesn't do that very often. In fact, you'll almost never find just, here's what God's like. You know, like, here's the hundred names for God kind of thing. You don't have that. It's story, it's narrative, and it's poetry. The only time that we have something like it, it's actually couched in a story. I want to read to you Exodus 34. Exodus 34, it's the longest and most detailed description of the character of Yahweh, the character of the God of the Hebrew scriptures. And we read this, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And then he, that's Yahweh God, <clears throat> passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, that might be like to the thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. How many of you so far are like, I like that God. He seems pretty cool. Like, I, I'm, we all love that. That sounds fantastic. Uh, rest of verse 7. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Oh, man, why do you have to say that? Right? Just, I like the first part. We all like the first part. But then there's this. And that's where it kind of introduces. Oftentimes, we feel confused, right? Because how am I supposed to relate to a person who is loving, but then like, well, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're really out to get me because are they, you know, again, are they, are they judgy? <laughs> um, how, do I, how do I wrestle with this? And this isn't just a theological question, is it? It's a relational issue because if I'm called into relationship with this God, I need to know, like, what do I expect from you? <laughs> what can I expect? Because you say things like, um, abandon your will to me, turn your life over to me. And, and But can I really trust you? Like, what kind of God are you? So these are the kinds of questions that I think we oftentimes <clears throat> have. Let me, let me put up for you two words that I think kind of get at the issue. Can you read those from where you are? Justice, right? We could use other words as well, but we'll use that one for tonight. Justice and then love. So God's justice, <clears throat> but then also God's uh, loving. So here's what I would suggest that might help, is first of all, let's kind of reconsider our concepts. Because I, I would suggest all of us, we read these words, we, we might have kind of different thoughts, right, on like what justice means, what it involves, or love. Um, a, a lot of similarity, I'm sure. But there might be some things in my conception of these two words that cause there to be a problem that maybe when there really isn't one there at all. So let's think, let's start with justice. When, when I think about justice, probably you too, one of the first things that, that comes to mind is punishing evildoers, right? Do, you, do some of you, is that, like, does that come to mind first? Um, so you think about like a robber, okay, if a robber gets caught, put in prison, I would say, 
Justice has been done. Right? Uh, if a bully at my kid's school gets put into place or you know whatever, um, I well he had it coming. Right? It's justice to to me. Or um, if a liar is found out, you would say justice has been done. So a piece of justice is punishing evildoers. The other side to that, another piece of justice, would be rewarding people who have done good, right? Um, it's catching, you've heard the phrase, you know, catch someone, what's the phrase? <laughs> catch someone doing good or something like that, right? If, if you find someone who has done a good job and you celebrate them, maybe you reward them, maybe if it's a work situation, they get a, they get a, uh, a raise in pay, which is always nice. Um, that would be a way in which, okay, that's justice being done. It's, it's rewarding those who are doing good as well. But justice is much more than that. Let me give you a brief working definition if you want to write it down. It's very short. Justice is when everything is in its proper place. Justice is when everything is in its proper place. Think for a second about the relationship of these two words, justice and adjust. When you adjust something, adjusting things to their proper place, uh, their proper size, their proper function is a sort of justice, right? Um, today when I was typing on my notes, I looked up to the top of my computer screen and there was a word that says justify. You know what happens when you click justify to a paragraph? I kind of checked it, I thought, I think I know what happened, but I'll try it just to. It makes it so that both on the left and the right, it's, there's no like hanging words. It's all straight and everything is in its right place. Do you know what I mean by that? That's this concept of adjusting things. There's no ragged edge. Justice is when no one oppresses another person. Justice is when we all show mutual respect for each other. Justice is when life and freedom and peace are affirmed. So think about a just ruler. Think about this quality, not just abstractly, but in a person, an individual, okay? A just ruler doesn't just punish evildoers, and they don't just reward the good people, right, who have who've been doing good things. They, they protect the weak so that no one's oppressed, no one is um, taken advantage of or exploited. So they not only make sure that people obey the laws, they make sure the laws are just, right? Um, you want to make sure that the laws don't unfairly punish weak people or that they don't <clears throat> unfairly favor powerful people, right? So here's my question. A thick, robust concept of justice, does that involve the care for the one that the justice is being done to. Yeah. This kind of justice, if you really think about justice, it's not only contrary to love, justice is actually a form of love. If I'm the ruler, I, I will administer justly because I love you, because I seek your well-being. Does that make sense? See, so you realize, oh man, this it's not just that it's like opposed to love, Justice actually doesn't work without love. You can't have true justice without love. So what about this word? What do we think about? 
Love is not simply allowing others to do whatever they want. Like, let's say they, they harm you, they do something, and then you say, yeah, no worries, no big deal. It's not a big deal. Here, here's what I would suggest. This might sound crazy at first, but let me tease it out. When you say, that's all right, what you did to me doesn't matter, is like saying, that's all right, you don't matter. Here's what I mean. Um, there's an ancient question in uh, ethical dialogue, and it goes something like this. And think about this. Try to answer this for yourself. Which is worse for you? The evil you do or the evil that's done to you? Probably your first thought is, well, of course it's the evil that's done to me. <laughs> well, consider this. The evil that's done to you cannot destroy your soul. Can it? It can affect your body, might harm you, might affect your mind. The evil you do affects your soul. So now ask the question again. <laughs> Which is worse, the evil you do or the evil that's done to you? So if you do evil and someone just says, it's all right, it doesn't matter, that's the same as saying, it's all right, you don't matter. Because see, the evil you do corrodes your soul. The evil I do corrodes my soul. So love is being concerned with the actions of the beloved. If you were a parent, you're like, yeah, no duh, right? <laughs> Those of you who are parents, how important is it to you that your child is a truth teller? Probably pretty important, right? Why? why? Just because you don't want them to get in trouble at school? No. <laughs> because you know that they're becoming a certain kind of person by every decision they make, aren't they? They're becoming a kind of person. That's why you care that they are a truth teller. That's why you care that they behave a certain way because you love them. A father who allows his daughter to just do whatever she pleases and tells her that's okay is not a very good father. <laughs> so do you see that true love, true like thick, robust true love, ultimately involves and coincides with justice. Do you see that? You can't have true love without justice. So all of a sudden, these two concepts that feel like there's this big red line in between them, all of a sudden you go, man, these are like sort of the same animal, right? I mean, they're like intertwined things. Do you see that? Are you seeing that? So. It is to remind us of this, that the creed ends by saying that Jesus is the one who will be our judge. Jesus, this loving being, is going to be the one who will actually be our judge. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, a historian who I've mentioned a couple times in this series, he has this great line where he says this, ours is a God of such love that it is perfect justice, and of such justice that it is perfect love. I love the way he put that. He's saying these two things, neither one of these things can exist without the other's existence. 
Now, we're going to read John 5.22. Um, it'll be on the, screen, on the screens in a second. Before we do, let me, let me set it up for you. This is a passage where Jesus is going to assert this very thing about <clears throat> who he is. So, um, and at the top of your bulletin, you, I, I gave like, I don't know, eight or nine, ten different verses that, that um, are relevant to this topic on Jesus being the judge. And this is just one of them. You can go back and look at a lot more there. So before we read the passage, though, let me set up for you. Jesus has in mind something that if you don't understand it, you'll kind of miss some of his nuances. Um, And he has in mind this picture of an agent of some sort of a ruler, like an agent of a king. Now, in in, uh, antiquity, in the ancient world, being an agent, it referred to a role that you would play that you had been given power an authority that was delegated to you in order to accomplish some sort of a task. I'll give you an example. Um, in the ancient world, if let, let's say if a king wanted to negotiate um, peace or you know, the price of cereal crops at a distance and he's not close, he would, he would assign an agent who would fully represent himself. And what I mean by fully represent himself is that the agent's words were binding both on his audience as well as the king that he was representing. Are you with me on that? So obviously it's really important who your agent is because whatever he signs you up for, you got to fulfill it, okay? You get that idea? That's what Jesus has in mind. That's what he's playing off of. Now read with me John 5, 22 through 30. Jesus says this, Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you see the agent imagery there that he's using? Verse 24, very truly I say to you, meaning my word is just as binding. (laughs) Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, this is present tense, has eternal life and will not be judged. Now, this is a key piece here. But has crossed over from what? Death to life. This is important because he's going to reference something in a minute. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the... Who's that? The dead. Doesn't mean dead people because he just referenced you who are here. You crossed over from death to life. Okay. Um, He's not talking about physically dead people. Um, will hear the voice of the Son of God. Interesting, this is only one of three times that John records Jesus using the title Son of God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the, remember this phrase from the other week? He's the son of man. Remember 81 times Jesus uses it for himself, and this is a reference to Daniel 7. Remember the passage where the son of man on clouds goes up to the ancient of days, and there's an empty throne there, and he sits down on it? Um, So he's alluding to that again. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves, now he is talking about people who have actually died, will hear his voice and come out. Uh, those who have 
uh, done what is good, and of course he just defined that up in verse 24 is hearing my words and believing him who sent me. Um, and those who have done what is evil, which would be the opposite of that, of that not, uh, would not hear his words and would not believe the one who sent him, will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. What ultimately got Jesus killed is the same thing that gets serious Christians today in the West maybe sneered at or worse in other places, which is these ultimate claims about this person like highly exalted claims about this Jesus character, not just saying he's a good guy, even a wise man or a good teacher or any of that sort of thing, but ultimate claims. And if, you've, if, you've, if you read the chapters before this section right here in John, Jesus has been making these crazy claims like I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water, um, I can forgive sins, like ultimate claims about who he was here. And in this passage, in this passage, Jesus is expanding his divine claim. He's expanding it. Um, just before this passage, right, like literally the verse before, uh, he's accused of breaking the Sabbath, and he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Wait a minute, who established the Sabbath? <laughs> Yahweh established the Sabbath. What do you mean you're Lord of the Sabbath? Like, so you get these, these radical ultimate claims are so huge. But what, he, what Jesus is saying is that because of who he is, Jesus can do what God does. Uh, one, one commentator points this out, which I thought was interesting. He says, note how in verse, uh, in verse 31, Jesus no longer speaks in the abstract, but rather speaks in first-person I pronouns, like repeatedly. He does it like six, seven times in, in one sentence because he's, he's trying to get you to see this is emphatic speech. Don't misunderstand me. I do not want to be vague here at all. You know, when he sees this, where he says, but myself, I can do nothing. I judge only what I hear, and my judgment is just for I seek to do. He's sort of saying, this is me. I have a complete authority to say this. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I want to be crystal clear in what I'm saying here. Now, there's another radical claim. First radical claim is just, like, you're Yahweh? Come on. Like, these radical, radical statements about who Jesus is. The second radical claim that Jesus makes is about us. It's about our human nature. And here's, here's the claim. We are the walking dead. How many of you like zombie movies? I've got couple weirdos in my house who like enjoy like video games and movies with zombies. I mean, anything with zombies are like, oh, that is awesome. Jesus' claim is that to be human apart from him is to be part of the walking dead. Let's go back and read the passage, John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged because he has, again, what? Yeah, you've crossed over from the walking dead to actually having life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead, that's the walking dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear him will live. How is that? Because they don't have life. Well, here's how. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus understands, and this is what's kind of wild as we think about judgment. Jesus understands that eternal life and eternal death have already started. Jesus understands that every single one of us is on a trajectory. And there's nothing that radical that happens at death or the resurrection. It's just the next step in that trajectory of where our life is going. See, modern people, when they hear and they think about final judgment, this, this is sort of how they think about it, is that, you know, God gives us time, but if we don't make the right decisions by the end of, of our life, um, then he just sort of casts our souls into hell, and as the souls are falling through space, begging for mercy, he goes, sorry, you missed out, you messed up, didn't have enough time, didn't get the answers right. That's sort of the way that the modern world tends to think of, vinyl, of final judgment. What's wrong with that? Well, it completely misunderstands the nature of evil. See, the biblical picture is that sin is what separates me from the God who is the source of all joy and all goodness and all truth and all beauty. Like, he, he is those things. And so sin separates me from the presence of the one who is joy, himself is joy. And so because we were originally created for God's immediate presence, it's only before the face of God that I can really thrive. It's only before the face of God that I can reach my ultimate potential as a created being. So to lose his presence totally, well, that, that's just hell. To lose the presence of the one who is joy and is goodness and is all these things is simply hell. So Jesus is saying here that your life is either oriented around your will or your life is oriented around God's will. You either want your will to be done, meaning captain of your own destiny, or you want his will to be done. But your eternal trajectory has already started. You're either among the walking dead or you're of this other group who have received a foreign life source which has changed the trajectory of where you are walking. So you're either among the walking dead or you're among those who, like verse 25 and verse 26, have said yes to the voice of the one who has life in and of himself and has infused you with that foreign life source. Listen to um, some other words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. This isn't on the screen, but this is one of the ones that's up on the top of the bulletin there. Matthew 25, um, 31, Jesus says this, and, and, and listen, listen carefully to what he says, especially at the end. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Remember, that's Daniel 7 language. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, there's nothing unique about sheep and goats like 
pe some people are talking about like there's nothing bad about a goat or anything like that. He's simply saying, I'm going to observe who is a sheep and who is, who is a goat. But here's the point. You're not going to become a sheep once you die or at the resurrection. You're not going to become a goat once you die or at the resurrection. The final judgment will simply be Jesus placing already goats here and placing already sheep there because their trajectory started long ago. There's nothing that's happened. This is just the next step of their trajectory. And those who want and have wanted God will get them. And those who want and have wanted their own wills will get just that to the exclusion of God, who is the source of joy and beauty and goodness. See, that's what we're affirming when we recite from there, from this place, Daniel 7, from there, Jesus will return and he will set everything in its place. Everything will be properly placed in the universe. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, do you remember, do you remember that verse we read at the very beginning in Exodus? Um, it's this sort of like list of things of different qualities of, of Yahweh. Listen to this again. There's this, there's this really cool word that, that he uses. Um, Exodus 34, verse 6. It says this, And he, Yahweh, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and what's the word, next word there? Forgiving. The, it's, it, it's kind of a cool word. I know, I know you all want to pronounce this as NASA. It's not NASA. Um, N-A-S-A. The, the, the Hebrew word that our English Bibles translate to forgiving is just the word to carry something. You, can, you could use it just like, we've got some chairs here. We would like them back there. Would you please nasa the chairs to the back? We need the chairs to nasa to be picked up and moved. And what's so fascinating is that that's the word that is used, not always, but oftentimes, when this idea of what is God going to do about your sin? He says, I will nasa your sin. I will pick it up, and I will carry it. I will, I will take it away from you. Forgiving Nassah, the wickedness, rebellion and sin, I will, carry, I will carry wickedness, I will carry rebellion, I will carry sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There's this constant offer. You know that guilt you have from your sin? It's real. It's very real. And I'm not going to say it's not that big of a deal because it's corroding your soul and I love you. <laughs> but I would love to Nassah the guilt of your sin. This is what King David, after he had made some of the worst mistakes of his life, in Psalm chapter 32, has this sort of poetic, he's like exploding with exuberance. I'm like, I can't believe God forgave me. Psalm 32, just verses 1 through 5, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. And he says, when I kept silent, meaning I hadn't confessed my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you, Nassah, the guilt of my sin. See, the same one who said that he would come and judge you, the one we're talking about here, <laughs> not a fun topic, that same guy who said, I'm going to come and judge you has already nassahed the guilt of your sin. He's already done it. See, we said that we oftentimes struggle to reconcile love with justice, right? Understandably so, when, depending on how we think about it. But see, his justice and his love, the cross becomes the place where all of God's attributes come together. Perfectly come together. The cross is the one place that God's justice and his love are perfectly seen because Jesus nassah your, your guilt of your sin. He nassah the guilt of my sin. He picked it up. He carried it. Today marks a day called Ash Wednesday. If you grew up in a liturgical church, I didn't. I had never heard about Ash Wednesday until I was an adult. Ash Wednesday is the start of a season, a Christian season called the Lenten season, Lent. And it's 40 days counting backwards from the coming up Easter. And so that's this day today, 40 days. And so we, the church has for centuries celebrated this season, kind of like preparing for the biggest moment of the year, which is Easter for the believer, because that's where, man, my sin was Nassau, <laughs> and then resurrection happened. And so one of the ways that, that, that the church would, would do this on Ash Wednesday is this practice of taking black ash, and the ash comes from the palm leaves of the previous year that were burned, <laughs> and either having a, 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 on their hand, the back of their hand, the shape of a cross, or, or on their foreheads, the shape of a cross. And it's this, it's this ancient practice, and it's a, um, it's a sobering practice, it's an intimate practice and because, see, it echoes the words of Genesis 3.19, which were the idea that we are dust, and to dust we're going to return. That's, that's sobering, <laughs> right? That's, because that's, that's this reality of the walking dead. So in a sense, it's a symbol of saying, yes, that, that is in my past and in my story is the walking dead. But what I love about it is that the ashes are applied in the shape of a cross, right? The only means of escaping the dust of death. So it's like, yes, there's a sign of, of my mortality right there. I'm going to return to dust. But it's in the shape of a cross because the cross will allow me, the cross will allow you to escape the dust of death. When God raised Jesus, he raided death. He destroyed its power. Jesus' resurrection marks the death of death, giving us hope that we're no longer the walking dead. That is our consolation. That is our hope. And I would suggest it is the only hope. It is the absolute only hope that we have.